Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind and cleanse. Come as the fire and burn. Convert and consecrate our lives for our great good and for the greater glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As I've read this letter of James over the years and, and taught on it, preached from it, reflected upon it, I have come to the conclusion that James, who has been called the, the apostle of practical Christianity, is more like a spiritual coach than he is like a professor of religion. He has more in common with the gymnasium and the fitness center than he does uh, to the classroom. A professor wants you to learn new facts, new things, new ideas, new uh, approaches towards life. The coach wants you to perform better. He's uh, all about whether you can get the job done or not. And when he wants you to learn new things, he does so from the standpoint of executing things better. And so he comes to uh, uh, us this morning, down through the centuries, with a penetrating question. Will your faith save you? Have you reckoned with the gravity of sin, the definiteness of mortality, the weight of your life in such a way that you have asked yourself, will my faith save me? Or in this case, will it save you since I'm the preacher? And James is concerned. Now, now, I will admit, he does it with a little bit of an impishness, a little bit of a sparkle in his eye, but the question is a serious one. Not unlike that day I was walking through the graveyard of St. Michael's Church in Charleston. I had already done an 8 o'clock Eucharist, I had taught the adult class and now was walking through the graveyard to the church for a confirmation service. I was not dressed in Russian Shamir, which is what I'm wearing now, but I was wearing cope and miter. So I had the hat on and I had the, the fancy robe and I was carrying my crozier as I walked to the graveyard. And there were some um, tourists who were gathered around one of the great uh, grave sites of a noble Charlestonian South Carolinian. I think it was Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, signer of the Declaration of Independence, one of the formers and thinkers behind the Constitution of these United States. They were obviously tourists because they were dressed like tourists. You know them because you live on Polly's Island. And as I was walking by that 
impishness that I think is in James's question entered into me. And I looked at these tourists and I said to them, standing behind them, they had not yet seen me, are you contemplating your own mortality or someone else's? They turned around, looked, and there was the bishop standing behind them with all his regalia. And they said, sir, what did you say, sir? Pardon me? I said, are you contemplating your own mortality or someone else's? Now, one of the reasons why I raised that question is because of the text that I was preaching on that morning. Which is from Paul's letter in which he says... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we have done in the body, either for good or for evil. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And on that day, comes James's question will your faith save you Paul in his letter to the Ephesians says we are saved by grace through faith and not by works lest anyone should boast it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not by works, lest anyone should boast. But he goes on to talk about how this faith and God's grace produces in us all those good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. And James, picking up on a similar theme, wants to ask his readers or those to whom he's preaching the question, is your faith issuing in good works? Is it a faith that's genuine and real rather than dead and self-deceiving? Because we can't have a self-deceived faith that is merely intellectual, assent to a truth, but not anything I've given my life to in such a way that it shaped anything about who I am. You know as well as I do, there are people who come to Christ the King Grace, Waccamaw, on Christmas and Easter, but you don't see them any other time. They're not tourists who are here visiting with family and friends or on vacation. There are people whose faith is essentially a sentimental love of Easter or Christmas. They go through the motions of putting up the Christmas tree. They like to sing Silent Night, holding the candle and the warmth of the moment. But it has never penetrated into the depths of their soul. And they've never wrestled with the gravity of their sin. Years ago, before I went into uh, the, the ministry, 
My wife and I lived in Bakersfield, California, and she had a job at the Berean Bookstore, which was a Christian bookstore. There was a new employee whose last name was Mailer, and since my wife wrote the checks, she asked this uh, new employee, jokingly, uh, Betsy Mailer, you're not any relationship to Norman Mailer, are you? You know, the novelist, New York City kind of guy. She said, he's my father. Well, that caught my wife's attention. We got to know Betsy pretty well. She prayed vigilantly for her father. When she went back to New York City to be with her family for Christmas, her father wanted to go to the midnight Christmas service. So he's not obviously a Christian. If you've read any of his books, you know that. And while they were kneeling praying, she said, he said to her, what is that awful, awful stench and smell? Do you smell it? She said, no, I don't smell it. Do you know what it is? She said, if I had to have a guess, it was the odor of your sin before God Almighty. We must all appear before the great judgment seat of Christ, give an account of what we have done in the body, whether for good or for evil. At that moment, will your faith save you? James then goes on to give an interesting example. He says, is it, brothers and sisters, um, excuse me, I need to get to the text again. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? That is, a faith that does not issue in works that bless others and honor God. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for body, what good is that? If your faith never causes you to extend yourself into the life of another person, what is your faith all about? On Wednesday, my wife, Allison, and I were celebrating our 48th anniversary, and we were going out of town for the occasion. And going up I-26, we stopped at a gas station to get some gas, and she was driving, so I pumped the gas. And after I'd finished pumping the gas, I put the the, the nozzle back where it gone. I got into the car and just as we were, I was closing the door and Allison was getting ready to drive off. The fellow at the pump next to mine said something to me, which I didn't hear what he said. I thought maybe he was suggesting I hadn't closed the lid to the, to the uh, gas uh, cap. And so I, I told Allison, stop. And she stopped and I, I got out to see what the issue was. He said, 
ah, I just arrived at this pump. I'm going down to Beaufort. And I reached in my back pocket and noticed I didn't have my wallet. Well, is he honest or not? I don't know. He says, could you help me out? Now, what good would it have done if I said, yes, I'll pray for you. (laughs) I'll pray that somehow or another the God, God fills up your gas tank, huh? By somebody other than me. <laughs> or do I go over with my credit card, put it in, and fill, give him at least enough gas to get down to Beaufort where his mother lives? Does my faith ever cause me to take a risk on a questionable person Because I myself might be in that place. Which, of course, I have been in that place. It wasn't all that long ago that I made a visitation in Beaufort, South Carolina, midweek service for a confirmation service, confirmed about 100 people, got in my car driving home, and suddenly that little ding comes, and I notice I'm almost on empty, and I pull into a gas station in the middle of nowhere, I reach back into my pocket and realize, oh my gosh, I left my wallet at home. I scurry around and find $1.25 in the car. I thought, well, I'll put that in and then pray. (laughs) But fortunately, while I was going across the broad river, I thought, you know, Chad lives, my son lives in Beaufort, I'll call him. But imagine if I didn't have a Chad that I could call. So James is very concerned that we, who claim we follow Jesus Christ as Lord, who say we have been saved by grace through faith and not by works, occasionally manifest the works of God in the lives of other people because we believe. And then with another impish question, will your faith save you? Why, even the demons believe, intellectually. They even shudder at the thought of judgment. But they don't surrender themselves to God's work and turn from wickedness and live. So my friends... I'm not here to give you much new. I'm like the fitness coach who knows already you know how to use the elliptical. (laughs) I don't need to give you any more tips on how to lift the weight. Uh, If you're in a a, a, a therapy, recovering from a, a knee surgery, you already know the exercise to do, but I'm just curious if you're doing it. And that's what James wants to know. Will your faith save you? Do you ever go out of your way to touch the life of another person? If a faith never causes you to give yourself to the work of God here at Christ the King Grace, when asked, or when nudged by God to take up some ministry, 
How does the love of God and faith in Jesus Christ save you? I've come to the conclusion many people don't know how to walk by faith and live by faith. And consequently, well, it's like this. They always live life in first gear. When, when my brother was 14 years old, I was 10. My aunt Ethel and Uncle Charlie decided to take my brother on their trip back to Iowa to see some of our family members who lived on a farm in Iowa. So they got, and my brother got in their car, they went off with them to Iowa, and he learned how to drive a tractor. Now, I don't know what you know about tractors. I've dri driven a lot of them in my life. But let me tell you this about a tractor. You can put a tractor in any gear that's there and drive it all day long in that gear. So my brother learned how to drive a tractor. He got back to Bakersfield, where we lived, and went back to doing his paper route. And one day he had a friend who had a paper route across town who took their family father's car, drove it over to pick up my brother all the way around his paper route, and then drove home. And so the next week, my brother decided he would return the favor. He snuck into my dad's room, got the keys, opened up the garage door, somehow or another, found reverse and backed out of the garage door, didn't bother to close the garage door, and drove it across town to pick up his friend in first gear. Picked up the friend and drove him around the paper route in first gear. And then started driving home in first gear when the transmission went. This is long before the days of cell phones. So my dad gets up to go to work, goes out to the garage to get his car. And, of course, he doesn't have his key. He noticed that, that it's not in his pocket. But he also notices that the garage door is open and comes to the logical conclusion that any father would come to, that his son went out to deliver the papers and noticed the garage door was open and someone was stealing the car and tried to stop the man and got kidnapped. <laughs> Isn't that what a father would think? He came back in, told my mother, they called the police, and when I woke up, about 8 o'clock, there was a policeman in the, in the front room talking to my parents, trying to convince them maybe their son wasn't kidnapped. But they were convinced he was, until the police drove up with my brother in the back seat, having taken the car. Now, my brother didn't realize that what you do when the first gear goes up to a certain RPM, that you push in the clutch, you move it from one gear to another, and you go off into second gear. But I know a lot of Christians who spend all their time, all their lives, driving the car in first gear. They don't realize there's a negative and a positive dimension to faith. My grandfather once had a truck that he had to double clutch. He clutched it once to get it out of gear and clutched it another time to put it into the next gear. And I would like to suggest to you that the Christian life is a lot like that. There is a negative dimension and a positive dimension. What do you mean by that, Bishop? A negative dimension and a positive dimension. The negative dimension is wind, gloom, heaviness, 
discouragement, anxiety, fear, and doubt begin to squeeze in upon you, faith takes account of that negativity and addresses it. As Robert Browning, that great English poet, put it, for me, faith is perpetual unbelief kept quiet like the snake neath Michael's foot. Perpetual unbelief kept quiet like the snake neath Michael's foot. The image is one of the archangel Michael putting his foot upon the head or the neck of Satan, the serpent. You see, the opposite of God is not the devil, is not Satan. God has no opposite. The opposite of Satan is the archangel Michael, whom God had to throw the serpent out of heaven. So when the, the, the powers of darkness, of gloom, of heaviness, of fear, of anxiety, of doubt, begin to thrash about like a snake in your life, faith puts its foot down upon the serpent's head and presses down until it stops thrashing. For me, faith is perpetual unbelief, kept quiet like the snake neath Michael's foot, like the father in the gospel reading today. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. So the first dimension that faith does is it puts its foot down upon doubt, fear, anxiety, worry, depression, gloom, darkness. And we live in a world today that's filled with such things. And faith addresses first that, putting its foot down upon that serpent of darkness. And then the positive dimension of faith is it reaches out towards the promises of God. By faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Moses, by faith Joshua accomplished the purpose of God. By faith Sarah began knitting the blanket for the child before the rabbit had died. So faith reaches out. It is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the confidence of things not seen. There's two dimensions. So when the RPM gets kind of high, we move it into second gear. And from there, third gear and fourth gear. So will your faith save you? I'm betting it does. But only you can answer the question. Is it a faith that issues in dynamic living? Or is it a dead faith that is sheer sentimental, emotional, intellectual assent? Will your faith save you? Even the demons believe and shudder.
Let us pray. Father, we thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and that by grace we have been saved through faith lest anyone should boast. Grant to us, Lord, who are being saved by your presence in our lives, shaping us and forming us for those good works that you have prepared for us to walk in. May we be quick to see the opportunities and ready to go where asked by your Spirit and believe what you have promised that we may be saved even before the great judgment seat of Christ by the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.